Unfound Live is brought to you by its supporters at Patreon, PayPal, YouTube, and its gracious advertisers. On this episode, I discuss the conviction of the clown killer. I talk about the dangers of the gig economy. I take a request to analyze the Sydney West case. And I cover a bunch of other stuff, including a mime in the park. I'm Ed Densel, and this is Unfound Live for May 1st, 2023. Hello, everyone. What is going on? Let's make sure I'm looking good here. All right. How is everybody tonight? This is the Unfound Live show for the very first day of May of 2023. And what an odd day it has been. I'll be telling you about that in a little bit, but uh, <clears throat> overall, I'm doing very well. Uh, it was a little bit of a windy weekend here in Clearwater Beach, Florida, although uh, today it kind of calmed down, and uh, it was actually a very beautiful day. I went out and played some disc golf this morning, and that's where the funny story is going to come from. But before I get too far into all of this, uh, I hope everybody will give this video a thumbs up. You know I say it every week, and I'm going to keep doing so until um, this live show does not exist anymore. Got to give the show a thumbs up, and because that makes everybody happy. And if you're not yet a subscriber, we've been picking up quite a few uh, subscribers here on the channel. We've been um, well above our average, I guess what you would say, in picking up new subscribers to the channel over the last few months. So please consider doing that by hitting the little uh, red button there in the bottom right-hand corner. And if you would like to join this channel, become a uh, a member of this channel, I guess you might call it a paid member where you get some things that everybody else doesn't get, please hit the join button below and I can assure you that it will be well worth it. And also, if you'd like to contribute through Patreon, patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast and also uh for during this live show for the next two hours if you'd like to contribute that way through the super chat hit the dollar sign the little rectangular uh rectangle box with the dollar sign in it and you can contribute to what we do here that way please show support for Unfound, the podcast. So let's see who is in here. 
and we'll get started. Charles coming in first. What's going on, Charles? Hope you're doing well out there with the boys in Colorado. Everything 2023. You know, I've known you long enough, everything, that I remember when you were everything 2020. Hello, Karen, Delane, Mark, what's going on? Jasmine. Lisa asks, hey, Ed, how are you and everybody? Uh, and hello, everyone. I'm doing good, Lisa. Um, I'm really looking forward to telling you, all of you, a, a f- very funny story. Uh, I don't know what kind of day all of you are, are, have had, but if you need a little pick-me-up for a funny story, I'm going to be uh, telling that in a bit. Charles, uh, good evening. What's going on? And Twinkle and The Real. What's going on, The Real? The real Capella and uh, Katie. Hello, Katie and Kathy. Hello, Kathy. What's going on with you? All right. And Sarah, Suzanne and moderator Sheree. Good to see you uh, tonight, Sheree. And uh, I guess I have to do this while I can. How about my buckos, Sheree? How about my buckos? Uh, everything asks, how's the storm remnants? Uh, hope you all in Florida are good. Um, yeah, that storm rolled through. Uh, wow. It was crazy on Thursday night. Last Thursday night, I got some video of it. The only thing that was a little disappointing is the lightning. The lightning was not, um, you know, you see a big red blob coming across the Gulf of Mexico headed toward Clearwater Beach, and you're just thinking, oh, man, it's the perfect, you know, it's coming toward, and it's night, and you're going to get all this spectacular lightning. Really was not that. It was just very, very windy and uh, dropped a bunch of rain, and then it remained windy through Friday. Uh, A little windy on Saturday, not too bad until later in the afternoon, and then... Yesterday, it was very windy, and then today, it wasn't so bad. But the wind was coming in directly from the west, and so like this way, coming this way. And it was hitting these sliding glass doors. I have two sliding glass doors, one right here and then one over in my bedroom. And they were just whistling like for like hours you know, because the wind is just hitting them and the wind is finding its way through and it's creating this whistling. It was something. Lisa, thank you for your Super Jet contribution. Thank you. That's what Lisa has done. You see that little blue box with the diamond in it? That's what Lisa has done. She has contributed through Super Chat. Thank you. And Shree says, Ed, can you say hi to Kara in case she joined us? Tonight, uh, Kara, are you out there, Kara? Huh? Well, hello to you. And uh, you must have a lot of patience if you work with Sheree. I'm kidding, of course. I like Sheree a lot. She has meant so much to pod, uh, to Unfound the Podcast. Uh, for almost five years now, it's hard to believe that, Sheree. But Kara, I just want you to know, uh, if you are friends with Sheree, I think very highly of Sheree, and um, she has meant a lot to this podcast for the last five years. That's what I want to tell you, Kara. And hello, Glenn. 
And Katie says, we had a bit of snow here today. Oh, my goodness. That's, uh, I guess, Katie in Pennsylvania. Sheree says, go Buckos. <laughs> they, uh, I'm going to that. I'm going to talk about that. But I'm going to the game tomorrow here in Tampa. Uh, and then Sheree's laughing and everything's laughing. And Kathy says, we love Sheree. Um, speaking of baseball, I am going to the, the Rays game tomorrow. Why? Because my Pirates are in town. Um, conveniently. The best, uh, the team with the best record in the American League, the Rays, against the best uh, with the team against the team with the best record in the National League, the Pirates. Who would have thunk it? I mean, really, that's crazy. It's crazy, crazy. So my brother and I, and a coworker of my brother's, I kind of go know the guy as well. Uh, we are all going uh, tomorrow evening to the Pirates versus Rays. Game. I haven't been to a baseball game. Oh, I think it must have been 2017, maybe. No, no, no. Couldn't have been 20. No, 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 no. Couldn't have been 2017. 2015. I don't think I've been to a baseball game since 2015. So I am uh, really looking forward to this. I hope my pirates don't embarrass me. Yes, I will be wearing a pirate shirt. So there you go. So um, I want to tell you, I want to tell you this funny story, and then we're going to just jump right into all of the true crime stuff. I have a question to answer. So we got a lot to do tonight, uh, a lot of um, non-unfound news to cover. But some of you uh, might have already seen this. I posted this on my personal Facebook page today. I went over to the Coachman Disc Golf Course uh, this morning. I mean, I'm going to be playing in a tournament there this coming weekend, Saturday and Sunday. And even though Coachman is in Clearwater, like I live in Clearwater, it's like on the opposite end of Clearwater. And I really don't go over there that much. Unless there's going to be a tournament played there, I really don't go to that course it's 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 not like it's far. It's just so many lights. <laughs> stop, go, stop, go, stop, go. And, you know, I can go right over here to Taylor. I, of course, go up to the field up here to throw. You know, I don't go over there. And I, and I haven't played a coachman, tournament or not, in like two years. But being that I haven't been uh, haven't played there in a while, I said, you know what? I'm going to go over there today, this morning, and get up first thing, go over there, get some playing, and then come back and do some work. And that's exactly what I did. Well, I was reminded one of the reasons I other reasons that I don't go over that that often is because it's just a little weird over at Coachman. Um, you get a lot of people hanging out there. Uh, you got a lot. Of, you get some homeless people hanging out there. You get people who I think are living in their cars, who are are parked in the parking lot. It's just kind of a weird area. In contrast to Taylor, which is my closest disc golf course, where you never see any of that at all. So I go over there today. I run into a couple guys that I know. One of the guys' names just happens to be Eddie, who I know very well. And then there's this other guy, Jay, who I maybe don't know as well, but I know him. You know, he knows who I am and everything. And we're both Steeler fans. So, 
And they were working on the course because of the, the tournament. But they're both good uh, disc golfers, both very, very good disc golfers. But they volunteer their time. They're over there fixing the course up. Uh, I think a tree had fallen, so they had a chainsaw out, and they were doing some things. And I talked to them for a little bit. They, Like I said, we all know each other for years. So I start playing one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And I get over to the T for basket nine. And it's on the back part of the park. It's right along this creek. And you would never guess what was sitting there on the bench next to number nine's T. Keep in mind, this would have been at like about 10.30 in the morning, 10.30 Eastern time this morning, somewhere around there. And like I said, it was a nice day out. A mime was sitting on the bench there by himself. And when I say mime, face painted white, shirt like one of the, you know, the black pants that mimes usually wear, but like the white and black striped sh- shirt that, that that mimes usually wear. And he's sitting there on the bench and he's looking at his phone. And I'm looking at him and I could see his hair. His hair is very gray. He had to have easily been older than I am. And I'm 52. And this is like I said, this is like kind of just the thing that goes on at Coachman. This kind of happens at over at Cliff too, which is also in the Clearwater. Uh, you know, the boundaries of Clearwater, the city in here in Florida. You know, I'm not a big fan of Coachman as a course, really, but I like I really like Cliff. But once again, both of them just seems like weird things, you know. Go on. But so this guy's sitting there. I'm like, what? I'm saying to myself, what is going on here? And I don't know if all the other people who have been here have seen him. He's just sitting there on the bench looking at his phone. And, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on. Is this, is he really a mime? What is he doing here? I don't know. So I just minded my own business. I made sure to kind of stay my distance, but, you know, you can only stay so far away. Like I said, he's on this bench. It's kind of near the T, but I was kind of watching him out of the corner of my eye. And he's not saying anything. I mean, he sees me. It first doesn't say anything to me, which was funny. So I just go up to the T. I throw a few shots. Now, when I go out and play by myself, I have my phone going which I have right here. I I have Spotify playing. I was listening to Megadeth and whoever else while I was out there. And so I really can't hear anybody saying anything out, you know, really because I got the music going. Although it's not loud, it's like right here. So after my third shot, I thought I heard something and I turned around and he was saying something to me. And... He was like walking toward me and I was like, hey man, I don't hear what you're saying. Sorry. And I just like walked down the course, like trying to get away from him. Because you don't know, you know, who knows, you know, know, and even though I'm prepared, 
I will be honest that I had one of my guns with me, but I don't want to use it in case even if something bad happens. I have my red pepper spray and everything with me, which I take with me everywhere as well. But, you know, you don't want to put yourself in this situation. You just want to, you know, move along, move along, move along, move along. So I get down, you know, he doesn't follow me or anything. He stays right there in that T area of number nine. I get down to my discs that I've thrown and I go over to the T for number 10. Well, number 10 comes back the same way. And so the basket for 10 is like kind of near where he's sitting. So you go down this way and then you come back the opposite direction. So I throw my shots. Phew. I start walking down there. He gets off the bench. He starts walking toward me. And he kind of stopped. I guess maybe he saw my body language. Like, what are you doing, dude? He stopped. And I could see once again that he was trying to talk to me. So I, I had some distance. And I'm like, what is this guy saying? So I turned down my phone. And here, this is the truth. This is the truth. The mime who was talking was trying to give me throwing tips. <laughs> you can't make this up. You cannot make this up. And I just kind of nodded and whatever else, and I just kept on my way. You know, once again, he never got closer than about 50 feet or something like that. And, and trust me, you know, I know, you know, once a person gets, with, you know, within like 30 feet, if they have bad intentions, they can be on you very quickly. 50 feet, 30 feet sounds like a good distance. But by the time somebody starts charging at you and your body registers that, oh, this is trouble, the person's going to be on you. 30 feet is not that far. So I'm always thinking to myself, you know, if somebody's a little weird, I'm thinking 50 feet. If he gets within 50 feet, I'm going the opposite direction. I'm out. And so he's trying to give me throwing tips. I pretended like I didn't hear him and kept going down toward my discs. This is not the end of this. So I get my discs, put out or whatever, go to number 11, which then kind of goes back toward like that same creek, although I'm separated from him. And I saw those guys, Eddie and Jay, again. I went over and what's up with this mime? And they went over and talked to him as well. They went, he went over and talked to them as well. He asked them, you know, uh, I see you're, you know, working the park. Can I help? The guy said, this mime said to them. And Jay, <laughs> I wasn't there, but this is what Jay said. Jay said, to, he said to the mime, uh, are you allowed to be talking? <laughs> So, uh, I, Jay and Eddie told him, uh, you know, I think we're okay, man. I, you know, I, I think, uh, but they did, you know, like I said, it was just this, you know, the guy never explained what he was doing in this park by himself, dressed up as a mime. So I go over number 11, I throw what's kind of going down once again, in that same direction, although kind of away from him. I now see him like walking my direction again. And keep in mind, I'm not the only player there. Eddie and Jay are there working on the, on the course. There's another guy working on the course. There's other players. 
He just seems to be infatuated with me for some reason. So I get down to number 11 to the basket. I get my discs, and now he's getting closer to me again. And he asked me, hey, would you mind if I played uh, a few baskets with you? And I, I just thought right time, man, I, I don't want to do that. Sorry. <laughs> and then he turned around, and I think he finally got the point. He turned around, walked the opposite direction. Now, the funny thing is when I was finishing up, and I played 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, when I was finishing up, coming with 18, he was playing. Now, he was playing with some other players there. Um, and he wasn't very good. Good thing I didn't take any tips from him. But, wow. I mean... Like I said, I'm used to going over there the times I've been over there and seen some odd things. Like they have a couple, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want to disgust anybody, but you know, they have a couple Porter Johns. I'm not even gonna tell you what I've seen a couple times. I've used them over there. And like I said, you see homeless people there, some people doing drugs there, people living in their cars there. Even though this well-known Pinellas Park Trail goes right along the side and, and everything else and everything. It's just a little bit of a shady place. And I, but not even I, given my experience of going to Coachman, could have ever guessed that I would encounter a mime on the course and that this mime eventually would be trying to give me throwing tips. Oh, my goodness. I could not believe it. As soon as I was done, I called my dad on the way home. He was uh, with a friend of his. They were in the car, and I was telling them the story, and they were just laughing, laughing, laughing. And like I said, it was like the guy, you know, he didn't not, you know, at least, not at least to me, he never did explain why he was dressed up as a mime in Coachman. You know, if this is in Times Square in New York City, that's one thing. If it's down at like the Grumman Theater in LA, that's, you know, you know, and or Central Park in New York City or, or wherever else. But sitting on a bench on number nine basket at Coachman in Clearwater, Florida, I just don't know. You never I I don't know. And it didn't seem the guys that I knew, Eddie and Jay, they had any explanation for it either. So uh, that is my mime story for today. Little, I, I never, I, I, you know, I hope to live a long time, but I th was pretty sure that I was not going to have a mime story before I left this earth. Like, if you would ask me yesterday, Ed, if you live to be ninety, do you think you're ever going to have a mime story before you before you die? The answer would have been. A 100% no, I don't think I'm going to have any mime stories. Well, I had a mime story today. <laughs> so snapped. I just have no <clears throat> explanation, but it, it was certainly funny. I'm not here to make fun of the guy. He may be a perfect client. I don't know. But I think if you're you're a mime in a park on a disc golf course sitting on a bench you would think the guy might say, I know you're probably wondering why I'm dressed up as a mime in this park. Here's why. None of that. 
It was directly to, hey, can I give you some throwing tips? <laughs> oh, my. So there's my mime story. Um, he was not asleep. He was wide awake, everything. It does sound like a nightmare. It does. It does sound like a nightmare, Katie. Like you're walking through a park in your dreams and you encounter a mime. Yeah. And I couldn't help but think of um, this, the movie This is Spinal Tap where Billy Crystal says, mime is money. That just was kept going through my head as I saw this guy. Mime is money. Mime is money. And who was the mime? Who else was dressed up as a mime in that movie? Dana Carvey. On uh, Stay Away from the Mimes, Marcus says, yeah, sounds like he had a big night. I don't know. Must have been. It was very awkward, Katie. It was very awkward because once again, I'm thinking, you know, what's going on here? This is not normal. And that's why I just didn't want to turn my back to him or anything and wanted to keep some distance um, uh, from the guy because he offered no explanation. I was the one there dressed like you should be for disc golfing in a coachman. He was the one who was dressed like mine. Uh, Marty says, that's hilarious. Charles says, weird. Carrie watching on Drive Home. Hello, Carrie. Kathy would have done the same thing you did. Ignore weird people. Katie, last time it was a guy in a truck. This time a mime. You're having some bad luck. Yeah, going back to a couple months ago where that guy, uh, you know, claimed he was a cop. And I had to tell him, you know, the sign. I, I'm not the luck. I don't work here. The sign works here, which is probably the most Ed Denzel sentence ever said ever. It is crazy, Twinkle Marty. Maybe he was a fan. Uh he could have said so, Marty. Lisa, I hear I need to hear the Porta John. No, you don't. No, you don't want to hear that, Lisa. Marcus, that's so strange. A mind that talks, giving you disc golf tips. Yep, a mind that talks. Uh, Marcus asked me thoughts on the Steeler draft. I did watch the Steeler draft, Marcus. From all signs, indications, it sounds like they did pretty, pretty well. Seems like everybody was very positive on their selections. They got the the right players at the right times. They didn't like uh, overspend or, you know, pick a second round guy in the first round or anything. So I'm. It sounded very positive to me. They certainly got players in positions and where they had needs. I have to admit, I don't hardly know anything about these players except that one of them is the son of Joey Porter, and he played at Penn State. But it, my perception is that uh, at least local sports people in Pittsburgh uh, more positive than, um, you know, maybe in past years. So that's what I would have to say, Marcus. But like I said, I'm just, I'm not an expert on, I'm just saying what other people said. Marty, well, clearly his mime career isn't taking off. So maybe he wanted to try his hand at disc golf coach. Maybe, you know, I was even thinking, you know, kind of as I was leaving and where I have to drive by, I drive by where the Philadelphia Phillies have their, their double A affiliate is in Clearwater. And I've actually played disc golf in the stadium up there that my buddy Trevor, although it's been years, my buddy Trevor uh, arranges to have disc golf played in that, in that place, like every Wednesday night, like in during the season or off season or something. And I was thinking, was he like hanging out at Coachman before? Did he get hired to do something at the game and he was just hanging out there before? 
I mean, I can't see that. I mean, if, if he was waiting for the game, then why is he going out and playing and getting all sweated up and everything? So that it didn't end up making any sense to me either. <laughs> Just caught up this morning and said, I think I'm going to be a mime today. But I didn't see him do anything that was like a mime. He didn't pretend like it was in the box, you know, or walking against the wind or anything. He didn't do one mime thing at all. I was kind of disappointed. So uh, there you go. So that's my mime story. All right, let's move on to now. Now this is really funny. Now, so we're going from a mime story to a killer clown story. This was not planned, but I have to talk about it uh, because I talked about this before. Uh, You remember that there was going to be this murder trial here in Florida about this woman uh, who's allegedly dressed up as a clown and murdered uh, a guy's wife and then ended up getting married to that guy many years later. Uh, Her name, uh, the, the woman's name is Sheila Keen Warren, and the victim was Marlene Warren. Well, uh, Sheila Keen Warren has taken a plea and has uh, pled guilty to the murder of Marlene Warren. And the reason I'm, I, I need to read this is because a lot of those blanks that existed in the times before and when I've talked about this get filled in in this story. It all uh, makes a lot more sense to me now. If you remember back when I talked about this, I mentioned, well, you know, Marlene got married or got murdered in 1990, but Sheila Keen Warren didn't marry Marlene Warren's widower until like 2002. So that seems a little weird. Well, now I get to fill in some of the blanks. So I'm going to read this story to you. Fort Lauderdale, Florida. A clown came to Marlene Warren's door on a May morning in 1990 handed her carnations and balloons, and then shot her dead in front of her son. On Tuesday, her husband's second wife finally pled guilty to being the killer, closing a case that is strange even by Florida standards. That's nice. Sheila Keen Warren, 59, pleaded guilty, pled guilty to second-degree murder in a deal that will likely see her released from prison in no more than two years. So even for all this, she's going to get released in less than two years, allegedly. I don't get it. Long suspected of being the shooter, Keen Warren has been jailed awaiting trial for first-degree murder since 2017 when Paul Beach County Sheriff's investigators said improvements in DNA technology proved that a hair found in the clown's getaway car came from her. Keen Warren has insisted, however, that she is not the killer. Palm Beach State Attorney David Ehrenberg said in a statement that the plea deal obtained a measure of justice for Marlene Warren and her son. No public notice was given for two days, Tuesday's plea hearing in West Palm Beach, which otherwise would have drawn a throng of reporters and spectators. Instead, it was handled quietly during, the, during Circuit Judge Scott Suskower's lunch break, break from another murder trial. Sheila Keen Warren has finally been forced to admit that she was the one who dressed as a clown and took the life of an innocent victim. She will be convicted. Uh, she will be a convicted murderer for the rest of her days. Her attorney, Greg Rosenfeld, told the Associated Press in a phone interview, this is an incredible win for Ms. Keen Warren, still insisting she is not the killer. 
Keen Warren has said she is not, has also said she is not the killer. The deal calls for a 12-year sentence, but Keen Warren has already served six years awaiting trial. Also, Florida Law 1990 allowed significant time off for good behavior, so Rosenfeld expects her to be released early next year. I just don't get it. Her trial was set to start next month, and if convicted, she would have received a life sentence. If she had received a life sentence, she likely would have been paroled after serving 25 years. Originally, prosecutors sought a death sentence, but eventually dropped that. The state of Florida originally wanted to execute her, but now she's going home in 10 months, her attorney said. While it's difficult to plead guilty to a crime she did not commit, it was a kind of no-brainer when there's a guarantee that you will be home with your family. Ehrenberg's office disputes Rosenfeld's claim, saying she will be in prison at least two more years, like 10 months, two years. I mean, she's a killer. Marlene Warren's son, Joseph Ahrens, watched the proceedings online, only 21 when he saw his mother murdered, and now in his 50s, his only message to the court in Keene Warren was, may God be with her. The trial was delayed numerous times by the pandemic and fights over evidence. At the time of the shooting, Keene Warren was an employee of Marlene Warren's husband. So there you go. There is the connection there. At the time of the shooting, the killer was an employee of Marlene Warren's husband, Michael, at his used car lot. Since 2002, Keen Warren has been his wife. They eventually moved to Abington, Virginia, where they ran a restaurant just across the Tennessee border. Witnesses had told investigators in 1990 that, that she, Sheila Keen and Michael Warren were having an affair, though both denied it. Over the years, detectives said uh, costume shop employees identified Sheila Warren as the woman who had bought a clown suit a few days before the killing. And one of the balloons, a silver one that read, You're the Greatest, was sold in only one store, a public supermarket near her home. Employees told detectives a woman who looked like Keen Warren had bought the balloons an hour before the shooting. Of course, these days would have video of it. The presumed getaway car was found abandoned with orange hair-like fibers inside. Now, here's another key to this. The white Chrysler convertible had been reported stolen from Michael Warren's car lot a month before the shooting. Keen Warren and her then-husband repossessed cars for Michael Warren. So there, see, this is all coming together. This was the connection, how they knew each other. and But then you start wondering, it really took DNA after all these years to make her take a plea? I don't know. Relatives told the Palm Beach Post in 2000 that Marlene Warren, who was 40 when she died, suspected her husband was having an affair and wanted to leave him. The car lot and other properties were in her name, and she feared what might happen if she did. She allegedly told her mother, if, happen if anything happens to me, Mike did it. Although Michael Warren has never been charged and has denied any involvement. Rosenfeld, the killer's uh, attorney, said the state's case was falling apart. One DNA sap sample somehow showed both male and female genes. The other one could have come from out of every 20 women, even Marlene Warren, he said. And even if that hair did come from Keen Warren, it could have been deposited before the car was reported stolen. He said Aaron's and another witness also told detectives that the car deputies found wasn't the killer's, though investigators insisted it was. Aaron Berg in his statement conceded there were holes in the case, saying they were caused by three decades that it took to get to trial, including the death of key witnesses. Michael Warren was convicted in 1994 of grand theft, racketeering, and odometer tampering. 
He served almost four years in prison, a punishment his then attorney said was disproportionately long because of suspicions he was involved in his wife's death. Michael Warren did not return a call Tuesday, sinking comment. So like I, I what as what I've said before, um, there was just some hard things for me to understand reading previous articles. This connection between the woman who was the killer and the guy who was married to the victim and all of that, now we know. She worked for the guy. She and her husband at the time worked for him repossessing cars and everything. And then it sounds like they were having an affair way back in 1990. And then it seems maybe she had to wait until Michael got out of jail in 1994 before they could continue their relationship. And then, of course, they got married in 2002. But like I said, so there are all sorts of connections between her and Michael Warren. She worked for them. So... You know, my perception of this murder, this is just shows you how perceptions can change. You know, I was perfectly willing to believe that she did it, but there were a lot of blanks there. And I'm thinking, well, maybe something else here is going on. But now that I read it, it's like the exact opposite. If this is all true, then how did it take this long to put this all together? Did you really need DNA to really make this case? Did it really take 33 years? You know, and and as you know, we don't do murders here. I don't study murders, and we hardly ever talk about DNA or forensics, anything like that on found for obvious reasons. So maybe I'm a little bit out of my element on this. Uh, but... I guess it's one of those things, uh, if we want to use the best unfound example that we can use, she certainly looks more guilty than Steve Pankey does. She's not going to spend any more than two more years in jail, I guess. And Steve Pankey is going to be in jail for the rest of his life. It just it just makes no sense to me. I... I think this is what frustrates so people about the justice system. Of course, there are perceptions. You know, rich people get off, poor people don't get the best lawyers, poor people go to jail longer, and all of those things very may very well be true. Um, but it seems even with people within the same strata of society, the same ethnicity, the same race, and you know, Steve Panky, I would call him middle class. I would call these people middle class. Even within all of this. There are wide disparities between the sentences that people get. Now, granted, one's in Colorado and one's in Florida, but should it make that big of a difference? You wouldn't think. But she's going to jail for a little while. I, I just can't believe that she's been in jail since 2017. Let's say she gets out in 2025. She goes to jail for eight years for this murder for a planned out cold-blooded killing. And they felt like they needed to take a deal on this. If they were going to take a deal, why didn't they just take a deal on it back 20 years ago? Why, why have all this 23 years of re- investigating all this and then just give her a couple more years? It makes no sense to me. You know, if you're going to put in the work, then don't take a deal. 
go to court, make sure this person can get the maximum if that's what the jury decides. I don't see the logic of putting 33 years of work into something and then a person getting off easy. I don't get it. I just don't get it. But, um, uh, yeah, Katie goes, woohoo, Penn State. Thank you, Katie. Um, Twinkle said that this is a really weird case. It is certainly weird. I, I guess Twinkle kind of in a way it makes sense. She, of course, didn't want to be identified. She used uh, somebody else's car and, and all of this. Um, maybe she certainly planned it out. You don't hear too much about people dressed as clowns murdering people, so that certainly makes it weird. But this was a cold-blooded killing. Twinkle says, I didn't know she already served six months in jail. Uh, she served like six years in jail, Twinkle. She's been in jail since 2017. Uh, De- Deborah says, I smell an affair. Me too. Marty says, a little official to me. Everything, uh, everything says typical. Twinkle, they deserve each other. True. Marty, pretty much Twinkle. Deborah. All they needed was some samples from the back seats of the cars they sold. Oh my gosh, Deborah, look at you. Look at you, Deborah. <laughs> okay, we're going to just leave that one right there. Um, Marcus, it seems like there was plenty of circumstantial evidence. Marcus, I agree with you. Like I said, I don't get it. You wait all these years uh, with all this evidence, and then you take a plea. I don't get it. Uh, you're just being a smart butt. You're allowed to do that, Deborah. Lisa, why would it take six years to go to trial? Don't we have the right to a speedy trial? Lisa, I agree with you. I don't, you know, the COVID and everything else. I, I just don't know. Carrie, sounds like she was just over the entire ordeal and just paid, pled to end it. I have known peeps, uh, perpetrators that did that. Marcus, the DA should have pushed harder. They could have gotten a conviction, Markin. I've never worried about being killed by a clown, but first, there was Gacy, and now this chick. Yeah, watch Yeah, watch your back, Mark. If you go to the local park and there's a clown sitting on the bench, don't let that clown get like within 50 feet of you. That's my recommendation with my experience from today. Mimes, clowns, it's all the same to me. So uh, it sounds like it was a weak case of best. I, you know, Carrie, it, it just doesn't read that way. I, I get what they're saying. Well, her DNA could have been. Would a jury not have seen through that? Would they? Would they not have been put it all together? Even you know, this is what drives me nuts. Like I said, I know we don't do murders on unfound, but uh, you know, it's, it's just I. I think everybody has lost. Prosecutors, police, investigators, whoever, they have lost something. It just seems they are so scientifically based. Now, we want to, of course, go by science and everything, but, you know, where is that intuition? Where is that ability to persuade people when you don't have all the science that you would like to do so. What has happened to that? What has happened to that? That is the way this has been done for a long time, and it just seems that I know because of the lack of DNA back in the day, a lot of people wrongfully got convicted. Sucks. Horrible. 
horrible. But it seems like we've swung like the other way where uh, people are getting off for very light sentences if the science isn't 100%, which also seems wrong to me. It just seems like the pendulum has gone too far the other way now. Of course, I've talked about this before. I, in fact, I think Dr. Telesco and I, in one of her shows, uh, we had a talk about that. Um, Twinkle says, we need Columbo. We do. I agree. There's that Columbo aspect to this. And I realize he's a fictional character, but that show was written by humans thinking these things out. And you need kind of that intuition. I just think it's been lost. Everybody is so science-based. It's like, if we don't have DNA, hell with it. Which I guess was the opposite with Steve Pankey being that there was no DNA connected to him. You know, connecting him to Janelle Matthews' martyr. But, you know, as you all know by now, I, you know, I feel the, you know, the opposite way regarding that. I just, I, I don't know if I just can't get with the times or something. Marcus is worth Columbia when you need him. Yep. Yeah. He's uh, long dead, unfortunately, Marcus. You know, and it, I have to tell you, Marcus, it's amazing to me that that show has not been brought back. You know, they've done Miami Vice. They've done Magnum PI and all these other shows. You would think that they would bring uh, Columbo back, especially in this era of technology and cameras and everything. You'd think that they would be able to do a series with people trying to get away with murder and making things look like one thing and then having Columbo. The big problem is that Peter Falk was so good. It, It might be kind of tough to recreate that because it's so iconic it's so the performance is so iconic so unique but still i I, as a colombo fan i'm surprised they haven't attempted or it something's never made it to the screen even if it's on netflix or something people should use common sense katie says lisa i was on a jury and we convicted a guy based on only an eyewitness which is weak but in but intuition Everything says no one can replace Peter Falk as Columbo. Yeah, I, Peter Falk was spectacular. Some, you know, later in the later years, some of those uh, episodes are weak, but I mean, so many of them are so good. All right, so that is the killer clown story, and I do not mean killer clowns from outer, outer space. I, I don't know. Has anybody ever seen that movie? Killer clowns from outer space? I've seen it. Only saw it once. Must have been. Wow. What year would that have been? Maybe 2001, 2002, something like that. I think I watched it on DVD. Not really my kind of movie, but it's like a cult classic and everything. I mean, but trust me, I was thought I was living that today over at Coachman, even though I know it's a mime, but. Mime, clown. Uh, So there you go. All right, next story. Next up, um, national news story that I want to cover has to do with this young woman, Sydney West. And this was um, uh, a news item that was uh, recommended to me. Uh, I want you to keep in mind 
I'm going to, it's going to be right here in the first sentences that this is a disappearance that happened like two and a half years ago. But I, I don't, <clears throat> it just seems to me like, even though it's two and a half years old, it's suddenly become, has suddenly become prominent uh, in the news. Maybe there's been maybe something on 48 hours or something has been, has happened. I don't know, but for a disappearance that's two and a half years old, it certainly seems like I've seen a lot uh, concerning her disappearance recently. So uh, somebody asked me about it, and I said, yeah, I'll take a look into it and talk a little bit about it, read about it, and uh, give as best insight I can, being that that is what we do here, disappearances. Her name is Sydney, Sydney West, and all the information I'm going to read here is from uh, the website. There is an actual website for her disappearance. And I just went to the uh, frequently asked questions page and kind of, and I copied it. And so all of you can get to know a little bit about Sydney and the circumstances and, and what's going on here. So where and when was Sydney last seen? Sydney was last seen on September 30th of 2020 at approximately 6.45 a.m., so in the morning, on the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. What was she wearing when she was last seen? Sydney was wearing long, dark leggings, a teal hoodie sweatshirt, and Vans slip-on sneakers with a blue-green tropical print. Her hair was in a bun on the top of her head. She may have been carrying a black backpack. When was Sydney reported missing? She was reported missing to the Orange County's North Carolina police on October 1st, 2020. So keep in mind, she was last seen at the Golden Gate Bridge, but she was reported missing in North Carolina. What caused her family to report her missing? Sydney is very close with her family and speaks with them regularly. She had a lengthy phone conversation with her dad the evening of September 29th, and he fully expected to speak with her the next day. When he was unable to reach her after multiple attempts, he became worried and the family contacted the authorities. Why was she reported missing in North Carolina if her last known location was San Francisco? Sydney's permanent residence is North Carolina, where her family lives, and therefore the report had to be initiated there. The North Carolina report was was then immediately transmitted to the authorities in San Francisco, and a report was then filed there as well. Why was Sydney in California? She was there to attend her first year at University of California at Berkeley. Why did Sydney leave Berkeley? Sydney had suffered a concussion over the summer of 2020 and was still recovering when she left for school. When she arrived at Berkeley, all of her classes were being conducted virtually because of the COVID-19 pandemic. This proved challenging for Sydney, and she made the decision to defer until fall 2021 so she could fully recover. Where did she go after she left Berkeley? Sydney stayed with family friends in the Bay Area of California after leaving Berkeley. Why was Sydney at the Golden Gate Bridge? Sydney enjoys that area and would often go there to take pictures, take in the view, or go to for a walk or run. How did Sydney get to the Golden Gate Bridge? She used a rideshare service. The driver was interviewed by San Francisco PD uh, and has fully cooperated and has been helpful and is not considered a suspect. Has there been any activity on her phone, bank accounts, etc.? No, there there has been no activity on any of the accounts, phone, bank, credit card, social media, etc. 
since the morning of September 30th, 2020. How do you explain changes to Sydney's social media accounts after September 30th, 2020? Her parents took steps to make all sure make all of Sydney's social media accounts private following her disappearance in order to protect her privacy. Was Sydney in a relationship or have a recent breakup at the time of her disappearance? No, Sydney was not in a relationship, nor had she recently broken up with anyone. Has video footage footage from the Golden Gate Bridge been reviewed? Yes, all video footage from on and around the bridge on September 30th has been, 30th has been carefully reviewed. Unfortunately, foggy conditions that morning obstructed many of the camera views, making it impossible to tell her exact location on the bridge or how she may have exited the bridge. The, the nearby wildfires impacted air quality as well. Well, we do not we do know that the bridge was busy with walkers, joggers, cyclists, commuters who may have seen something. Can the video footage from the bridge be released to the public? No, there are several cameras on and around the bridge. And for security reasons, that footage cannot be released to the public. Has her cell phone been found? No. Has her laptop been found? Yes, it was found with her personal belongings in California. Has her backpack been found? Yes, her backpack was found in an area around the Golden Gate Bridge and was turned over to San Francisco Police Department as part of the investigation. It contained personal items and later returned. it was later returned to her family. Has there been any tips or leads in this case? Yes, there have been dozens of tips. And private investigator Scott Dudek uh, given to him, but none have led to finding Sydney yet. Scott Dudek, was he not involved in the Sherry Pimpini stuff too? How can people help? Sydney's family is deeply appreciative and everyone of everyone who has reached out with offers to help. There are several ways to help the family, share Sydney's story, print and post flowers, flyers around your city, for any information that you think may be may help bring Sydney home with the family's private investigator, Scott Dudek, 925-705-8328. Has a reward been offered? There is currently a $25,000 reward. And who should I contact if I have information about the case? Contact private investigator, Scott Dudek, once again at uh, 925-705-8328 or email dudek.associates at gmail.com. I'm a member of the media. Who should I contact? Contact Amy Weiss at Weiss Public Affairs, 202-203-0448, or Amy, <clears throat> or Amy at WeissPublicAffairs.com. So hello, Ferry. What's going on with you? Saw you uh, get in here uh, while I was reading all of that. So that is uh, all of the information that is now out there that um, regarding Sydney West's disappearance at the San Francisco Bridge on September 30th of 2020. Katie says, is my audio that's um, bad right now? Not sure, Katie. It very well could have been because I had my head turned uh, away to read all of that, but maybe not. Um, it just seems to me we've been having that. Some people have audio issues, some don't. I don't know. So... What are we supposed to think about all, all of this? Um, of course, it, you know, let's just admit it. It makes all the sense in the world that she jumped. I'm not saying, you know, is it logical? I, we don't know what, you know, was going through her head. I, I, I don't know. Um, but she's the one who walked out on the bridge and she's the one who's missing. 
and the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge is the most popular suicide spot in the United States. The issue is that her backpack that seemingly she was carrying when she walked out onto the bridge was not found on the bridge. It seems the way I read this, it might have been found on the other side of the bridge. And we have to realize the Golden Gate Bridge is pretty long. Uh, just to go back to that and read that for a second, I, you know, I think this is a key part of this. Backpack or backpack was found in an area around the Golden Gate Bridge. I guess we shouldn't take for granted that that means uh, it was on the other side. But the way I read that is that surely they would have noticed if they have a camera of her walking out onto the bridge, then it seems to me they would have been able to identify her when she came back off the bridge. It doesn't seem like that happened. My perception is that they see her walk out onto the bridge And that's the last time she's ever seen on any video anywhere. So then it makes sense to me that the backpack, you know, was not found on the bridge. So what makes sense to me is it was found on the far side. However, we cannot rule out the idea that she got out onto the bridge, left the backpack there. Let's just say that she jumped. She left the backpack there and then somebody picked it up. And that's the person who put it in its final location. We can't rule that out. I don't think there are any facts to rule that out. Now, what would be, you know, I think catch everybody's attention if they were more specific with this information. What if the backpack was found on the far side of the bridge, you know, in, you know, wherever the bridge connects to the land on that side, you know, in the woods or something. It doesn't seem to me that if somebody found that backpack on the bridge, that somebody would then take it, you know, walk the whole way down to the other side. You have to remember something that the parking to go out on the bridge is only on the one side of it. It's not on both sides. You know, we've talked about like Jackson Miller, when he went missing, he parked his car in that park lot, parking lot, walked away, did not walk toward the bridge. He walked away from the bridge. There is that parking lot there On the one side, I do not believe there's anything on the far side. So why would somebody pick up her backpack and walk to the far side when surely that person's car is on the the total opposite side of the bridge? So we just need a little more information there as to where the backpack was. I guess what I'm also saying is that if the backpack was found on the far side, along the side of the road or up in the hills on that other side, I'm perfectly willing to believe that Sydney was the one who put it there. That's what makes the most sense to me. But the big concern here, uh, let me see what the audio is fine. Okay. Thank you, Sheree. Sheree, you're welcome, Katie. Sheree, I think she was also struggling with a few things at the time. So that's definitely a factor. Kathy, The Golden Gate Bridge is only about one and a half miles. The Bay Bridge into San Francisco is four miles. Still one and a half miles. I mean, in my world, you know, that's decently long, although the Golden, that's not as long as like the causeways that I ride on to get from Pinellas County over to Hillsborough County. Okay. So still a mile and a half. Not close. Um, What catches my eye about all of this, 
I would certainly like to hear more about this concussion. Uh, we all know about concussions now. Maybe 30 years ago, not so much. But given that the NFL, at least here in the United States, play, plays such a prominent part in our culture, so much has been said about uh, concussions, mainly over about the last 10 years to 15 years, and and players who've gotten old and had concussions, and they end up having... Uh, you know, brain problems because of these concussions and everything. It's been a huge topic. On the other hand, I also know concussions still happen even in the NFL and players go back to playing football. Maybe, you know, maybe they miss a week, but two weeks later. So what exactly happened here that Sydney had a concussion during the summer that was still affecting her at the end of September? What exactly happened? Uh, I, you know, I'm not trying to get into her personal life. I guess there's a reason that it's not mentioned here. Maybe there is an article out there that's written about what exactly happened. But if NFL, NFL players can be diagnosed with concussions and come back like two weeks later and be fine, then what happened to Sydney? And so, uh, once again, this is speculation, but I'm doing this from a standpoint of covering 290 disappearances over the last not quite seven years. And there's just something about that that doesn't you know, seem right to me, that somebody could have a concussion and then two months later still be suffering from it. Was she? Or was it something else? Was she just telling people it was a concussion or was it really something else? You know, if she was having uh, issues of some kind, was it really a concussion or was it some sort of mental illness or was it depression or something like that and not actually the concussion? This is what goes through my mind. And once again, how many, how many times we've talked about mental illness on Unfound? Many, 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 many. Very sad. Very sad. Uh, Marcus, suicide is definitely a possibility. She may have been struggling to adjust with the pandemic and her concussion may have ex it, it, uh, exasperated that. Yes, Marcus. Shah Shri, are they fine? Though NFL players seem to make a lot of bad decisions. That's true. I guess what I'm saying, Shri, is that you don't hear about an NFL player having a concussion for the first time and then let's just say committing suicide two months later and every, anybody blames it on the concussion. That's, I guess, what I'm saying. We, you know, the truth is, uh, Shri, as you know, of course, they've changed the protocol in the NFL regarding concussions and head injuries and everything. But let's just be honest. We don't know the long-term, you know, effects of these changes. We may, it may find out that it doesn't change anything at all. Maybe. Twinkle, during your sale, committed suicide in the end. It thinks it was from brain injuries. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, Twinkle, that brain injuries can cause suicides. I don't dispute that at all. But the way I understand the studies into this is that it's continuous concussions over years and years and years and years you know, over and over and over and over. It's not generally one that then leads to suicide. If you get hit 
that hard, I would think you just automatically, let's just call it, have brain damage. It's more than a concussion. You actually have brain damage when maybe it's like a stroke or something. Rockford says concussions aren't created equal. Sometimes players stay in the game. I look more toward the overall mental state, which doesn't seem great. Kathy, I would think a severe concussion could cause long-term issues. It could, but do we consider two months later to be long-term issues? Lisa, the NFL concussion protocol would have put JFK back in the motorcade. Okay, Lisa. Mark, mental health is such a scary thing. So many people say I'm fine when they're not. That's true, Mark. And so we could see a situation where she's claiming that she's having issues due to a concussion, but it's really not that at all. Now, having speculated on all of that, As I talked about going back to when I covered the disappearance of Cameron Remmer, when I covered the disappearance of Jackson Miller, which were two episodes that were very close to each other, both young men disappeared in San Francisco. I actually ended up watching that documentary called The Bridge. It came out in 2006, and it was concerned all of people during a specific span who committed suicide by jumping off the bridge. And in the documentary, they actually have video of these people jumping or more like falling. It's, it's weird when you watch it, they don't jump. It's not like they thrust their legs and jump out. Most of them either just fall off or step off. They don't jump, which is so, But one of the things you learn about watching that documentary is in virtually all of these suicides, there are other people who see it. In fact, I can remember the one uh, suicide in that documentary. There are people standing there within feet of the guy who goes off the bridge, within feet feet of him. It it doesn't look, look like they totally realized what that guy was going to do. But they were within feet of them. And what I learned from that is most of the time, 99% of the time, people do see these people jump. And then there are the ones where they later find the person in the water and nobody ever reported some jumping. And uh, maybe they missed it on camera or whatever else. The factor in this is it was very foggy to the point where they have cameras on the bridge. And once she went out so far on the bridge, you can't see her anymore. So it's conceivable that no matter how busy the bridge was at that time in the morning, that she could have easily gone off the bridge without anybody seeing somebody could have maybe been within 20 feet of her and not known she was there. I just don't know. I I mean, all of us have seen, maybe some of you have even been there when San Francisco is foggy. I've never been there, but I've seen pictures of it and it gets pretty foggy. You know, here in Florida, maybe it's foggy one night per year or something. Even with the marine layer and everything else, it really is not a thing that happens here. Uh, that's more of like a West Coast thing or something. But probably because the Pacific Ocean is so cold and everything, whereas the Gulf of Mexico uh, is fairly warm compared to the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean is you know, at least down in this area, warmer than the Pacific Ocean is in LA or San Francisco, maybe that has something to do with it. So I factor that in as well, that um, most of the time when these people jump, people see them. So 
You know, uh, of course, the question is, if she did go off, why wasn't her body uh, eventually found? Why, you know, there are, of course, boats going under the bridge all the time. Uh, and in fact, of course, we know it's a known people who there, the law enforcement and the Coast Guard and everybody else, they know this is a thing that uh, people do go off the bridge. It's very sad and everything. And sometimes they successfully can stop some of these people. But that's the big question. You know, if she went off the bridge, then where'd she go? Uh, let's see here. Uh, Ferry says, my sister fell off a horse riding bareback and got up off the ground a different person. She was nine, got life flighted to Pittsburgh Children's Hospital from Grove City Memorial. Wow. Uh, Spleen says, uh, the bridge is a good documentary, but it's disturbing. It certainly is Spleen. That is not the type of thing that I would ever watch if I didn't have to. Yeah. Katie says the same thing. It was a brain bruise. Yes. Depends where it's been hurt. So, um, so what happened, uh, fairy, what happened to your sister regarding this in her fall off? Uh, what was the, what was the, uh, what happened to your sister regarding that? Spleen says, I lived in San Francisco. It gets very foggy. Rockford, I'm wondering what leads you to thinking Sydney West jumped, but Jacksonville did not. I can think of some reasons, but I'm wondering what evidence in the cases leads you to opposite conclusions. Well, first of all, Rockford, there was no video of Jackson Miller ever going out on the bridge. His car was parked at the bridge, but the video shows him walking away from the bridge, not walking to the bridge. And checking the video, they never could identify any person who looked like Jackson walking out on the bridge. That's why. I'm not saying he didn't. All I'm saying is that the ways you would go about figuring out if he went on the bridge, they just could not identify him. It's kind of like Brian Schaefer. You know, did he leave the tuna? He's not on the video, but there's this back way. Uh, This is the reason um, that when he got out of the vehicle, he did not walk toward the bridge. He walked in the opposite direction. And at least when I interviewed his mother, when was that? Uh, early 2020. Um, she didn't say anything about him ever seen, being seen on video on the bridge or walking out to the bridge. That's why. Um, and same way with Cameron Remmer. Of course, the difference with Cameron Remmer is that he disappeared at like 11 at night. And because of what has gone on, uh, the bridge has been inaccessible to people walking out during the night. It's been like that for like a long time, well before Cameron Rever ever went missing. So I suppose he eventually could have made it there. If you, you know, if you don't believe foul play or something happened at the Fairmont or whatever, that eventually could have made his way out to the bridge and jumped. But that'd be like looking for a needle in a haystack. Uh, Ferry, I've seen it in my family as well. My uncle had a head injury and committed suicide two months later. Never had any mental issues before. So this sounds very similar to maybe what was going on here, Sheree. Okay. Spleen girl, my parents lived in the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, for it now, Sheree, my brother also had a brain injury when he was four, and he's lived a very successful, happy life. So it's hard to draw correlations sometimes, but I think there are parts of the brain that change after. Rockford agreed. I think we also have some witness statements in the Miller case from a laundromat that's true. That seemed fairly credible, at least by eyewitness standards. I don't see it for Remmer at all. Yeah, that's that's right. There there was a laundromat sighting, whether you want to believe it or not. I Rockford, just me personally, I'm more likely to go along what was on the video that he was just walking away from the bridge. 
that's good enough for me. Uh, and I don't know if the way I remember his disappearance that he was necessarily suicidal. It seemed like he was having some sort of episode, uh, bipolar issue or something like that. But it didn't sound to me like a suicide episode. I don't remember that. Like he was talking about killing himself or anything. Uh, Rockford and Remmer was very far away when you're at the Fairmont. As I was a few times lived in San Francisco, you don't feel close to the Golden Gate Bridge. Kathy Splinger, yes, so expensive uh, talking about San Francisco. Okay. So, I, 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 of course, uh, you don't need to be a missing persons expert to think that the, the, the most likely scenario here is that she went off the bridge uh, for whatever reason. The issue we have is that, as I've said many, 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 many times, disappearances are about people. They're not about circumstances. And we just don't know Sydney enough. We know she had this con- concussion. And maybe it is somewhere out in the internet. What happened? Was she in a car wreck? Was this a sporting injury? Did she fall down somewhere and whack the back of her head, which is a very common way to get a concussion that can be the most dangerous? Um, You know, and what, you know, she was living with some people up there. What was she saying? You know, I realized her father talked to her the night before, but how about the people that were actually around her? What do they say? We don't know. And I think that if we knew that information, really, really narrowing, you know, we could really narrow this down um, as to whether she went off the bridge or she just kept walking to the other side. Either way, this does not seem like a very good outcome because if she's walking to the other side, I mean, where's she going? Where's she going? Very sad. Of course, hopes that she's 100% alive and that she shows, she shows up alive tomorrow. It's just, it, this, uh, you know, maybe Cherie, uh, this reminds me of that disappearance that happened in England where the woman went walking with her dog and she goes missing and then she's found in the river. You know, she went on that walk every day and people were thinking, well, was she accosted? Was she abducted? Was she this? Did she get attacked and everything? And in the end, I think the the solution was that she just went into the river all by herself. This kind of feels the same way to me. And uh, what's odd, though, is given that San Francisco is foggy a lot of the time, it's weird that we do not have more stories like this. We know that people are going off the bridge all the time, although they are putting in this netting or something. Maybe that needs to be figured into this. Of course, this was two and a half years ago, which I don't think that that was finished at the time. But you would think if this was a thing, that there were people going out in the Golden Gate Bridge who didn't come back and it's foggy and they can't tell you know, whether the person jumped or not, you would think this would be more of a story. Whereas my perception is that this is a very unique circumstance. So just, it, it's hard for, once again, without knowing more and finding out more about the people around her and everything. There, there's still a lot of holes there. 
Nicola Bioli. Uh, yes, there you go. Thank you, Sheree. Yes, this kind of reminds me of that disappearance. Rockford, would love to hear your theories on the other three of the San Francisco Five sometime. They have all seemed so different with the common thread being they all seem like lost souls of sorts. Uh, Rockford, you should know that I have talked to um, two of the mothers of two of the other. I've not talked to anybody in Sean Seedy's family, but I have talked to the mothers of the two other missing young men. It's just we kind of lost contact a little bit and um, I don't think they were too hyped up on being interviewed and everything. I was probably given another shot. I have some of their contact information on the notes and everything, but they, uh, we had very good conversations. I got along with both women, women very well. It's not a bad thing to say about them, but you know, after a while you just kind of get a feeling for these things and they just suddenly kind of became a little difficult to reach, but it's been a few years. This was like 2020. It was like three years ago. So, um, I might like to give that another shot Rockford. Um, but I know, um, I know a lot about all three of those other disappearances. I realized the one, the one guy was taking pictures he had been lying about getting a job or going to job, and then he ended up taking pictures, walking through San Francisco. And then the other guy, um, you know, flew up there to meet some friends, and he went missing while he was up there. And then Sean Seedy, he went to meet some former teacher or somebody, and then after that he went missing. So I kind of know those three other disappearances, but... Um, like I said, I've never spoken to anybody in Sean Seedy's family. Okay, I want to answer this question uh, that Penny asked me. Uh, she sent this to me, I think, through Messenger. It's a good question. Um, I've talked about this kind of before, but this is a very, what we might call a point-blank question. Penny asked me, do you know of any missing person that was found due to a missing person flyer? The, the answer, me personally, the answer is no. I'm not saying it's never happened. In fact, as many disappearances that have occurred over the history of the world, I'm going to say that a missing person's flyer has helped find a few people over the years but flyers are one of those things like rewards and dogs that are highly, highly, highly overrated. Um, as I've stated before, it, this just isn't how the human mind works, that you see uh, a person on a flyer and the flyer is tacked up to a telephone pole. And then a week later, you're walking around somewhere and you suddenly remember that flyer from a week ago and put the, you know two and two together. It's just not how um, it's just not how this works. Um, the fact is people go out, even myself who who does this for a living, who does this podcast, 
who does this 24 seven and everything else. When I got up and went to coachman today, it was not like while I'm there, I'm going through my Rolodex in my mind of all 290 missing people uh, who have covered on unfound. If the brain just can't do that. Of course, I realize some of those people have been found already. Everything, but So let's just say 260. It's not like there's 260 p- pictures that are constantly going through my head. Even though, on the other hand, if you were to show me the pictures of every missing person, I could you know, say that's so-and-so, that's Susie Lyle, that's Tom Brown, you know, that's, you know, Kimberly Raymer or whoever else. And I could even give you the circumstances when I'm out in public. It's difficult. Even if I wanted to do that, it'd be difficult. Uh, well, I do want to do that, but it's just not possible. I just don't know if, unless if you have one of those photographic memories, those people that can remember every day of their lives, maybe those people could do it. So this is why, in my opinion, person missing persons flyers don't have a very good record. I realize why people do it. I wouldn't necessarily tell them to stop doing it. But I think people who do that, family members, friends, need to realize that the odds of that working is very, very low. I think what happens is that they think that putting missing persons flyers up is like a really, really good thing to do because it's, you know, it's, it's, a it's, um, has a high chance of working and then they get frustrated, very sad and everything else when it doesn't. Whereas I would tell them it hardly ever works. And so if it doesn't work, I know you're still sad and you're frustrated. I know you're really scared for your missing loved one and everything, but don't beat yourself up because the flyers didn't work. They hardly ever work. You want to be sad about the missing person and everything. I totally get all that. But don't on top of that, don't give yourself a hard time regarding this. Marcus, a flyer of a missing person is panacea. It's just one tool out of many that we have to find missing people. And I've never seen a case solved because of a flyer. I it isn't a panacea. Um, yeah. Like I said, I'm not going to tell anybody not to do it. All I would say if somebody, you know, somebody contacts me, their daughter just went missing. Somebody emails me, I would say, yeah, you do that, but just realize, don't be disappointed if it doesn't work. You should do it, but manage your expectations. In addition, I don't know how much time and man hours you you know you really have to start looking at how many people you have helping you and where do you want to devote your time and efforts and everything. This should not be something that is very high on the list of priorities. In fact, I don't even know it would be number 10. It might be number 20, but I don't even think it would be in the top 10 when it comes to what you, one of the, those things that you got to do when somebody goes missing just because – the odds of it working are very, very low. So you have to manage that. You have to put that in the hierarchy of, you know, where should that go? You know, going back to what I was asked about the NFL draft, um, you would not draft flyers, putting flyers up in the first round. Certainly not. So now, but everybody may be though thinking about, 
a different question though. Well, if it doesn't work for people, why does it seem to work for lost animals? Because it does. Now, see, it's it's totally the opposite. With people, hasn't been proven to work, but with animals, it's much more likely that a flyer will work for a dog or cat or something. Now, why is that? It's see, these are the things about disappearances and all this that absolutely fascinate me. I mean, a dog is a living, you know, being too. It does, it's not as intelligent as people. It's on four legs, uh, you know, and uh, is liable to go anywhere. It doesn't have a sense of where I can go and where I can't go. But we know that dogs are found all the, all the time due to a flyer or somebody posting a picture on Facebook and everything else. But it doesn't work for people. Why? Now, I, have, I, I of course, have an answer because I've thought about this. But I'm wondering if all of you have ever thought about that. So I'm going to read some of these. Uh, Rockford, I think the best reason to put up a flyer is to see what happens to them, especially in certain strategic locations in the neighborhood of a suspect. You know, it's one of those things, Rockford, I, I can't even tell you, uh, you know, uh, and I realize, Rockford, I, you, I think I remember you've been work, like working your way through all of Unfound's episodes. You know, we, we've talked about um, flyers being ripped down quite a few times on Unfound. Not a lot, probably less than 20. But I would say at least 10 times we've talked about people putting flyers up. They go back the next day and the flyers are on the ground and, and everything. And they start to get very paranoid about that. Well, to me, it's happened enough for me to say, you know, I don't think that's what's going on. I don't think there's some suspect running around the streets at 3 a.m. ripping these down because the person's afraid he or she's going to get caught. I think there's a lot of reasons that flyers get ripped down. Uh, First of all, I'm not sure a lot of them are, quote unquote, ripped down. It very well could be that the wind blew them up. You know, some people, you know, go use scotch tape on a telephone pole. That's not going to work too well. You know, there's a lot of physics to doing that, to making sure that that paper stays or whatever it's being put for quite a bit of time. All right, so there's that. In addition, there are just people who are idiots, you know, and kids and everything else. To me, that more than explains why so many flyers get ripped down or on the floor or thrown in the trash and everything else than any sort of suspicion. In addition, if you start putting flyers up in front of businesses, just going down some, you know, street on the sidewalk, you know, up there on the telephone pole, you know, put it on the post, some no parking sign and everything else. A lot of store owners don't want that. That's bad business. They don't want it. They don't want any negativity around their business. Why do you think Tom Brown's signs got torn down in Canadian Texas twice? And in fact, the guy got caught and admitted as much. He tore it down because he did not like that the signs were portraying the town in a negative light. Even though this guy surely had nothing to do with the death of Tom Brown. It's just how people are. Um... 
Tree says, because people are looking to get rid of the dog, but not the human. <laughs> okay. I have a different reason, but I'll get to that in a second. Katie, I suspect that people do it because they feel like there's little else they can do. I can't imagine what these people will through. I agree. They're doing something because they feel like they need something to do. Yeah. Uh, Lisa Seinfeld, I checked the guy standing in line behind me. If it's not him, that's pretty much all I can do. Yeah, Seinfeld did a thing about, uh, you know, wanted posters in uh, post offices. That's true. Glenn, uh, dogs usually go missing for the same reasons, whereas people, it's multifaceted. Deborah, some of my, some of that's my brother calling. Hold on one second. You all get to hear me. Uh, Charlie, this is uh, Uncle Brian calling. Hey, Brian, I'm doing my live show. I'll call you in about 35 minutes. Okay. All right. We'll get, I'll get it all arranged. Okay. Bye. That was my brother, Brian, uh, calling me uh, about arrangements for tomorrow's baseball game. <laughs> yeah, Charlie, that was uh, Uncle Brian. Um, Glenn, dogs usually go missing for the same reasons, whereas people with it's multifaceted. Deborah, some of my dogs are smarter than some friends and family I have. Glenn makes a good point. Marty, I think you're right, Ed. A lot of wear and tear in those flyers comes from the elements. Deborah, these, that's ridiculous. People are so worried about what others think. Charles says hi to Uncle Brian Rockford. Unattended dogs are relatively uncommon. I think Rockford is, uh, my opinion, that Rockford's getting very close to the point. The fact is that the reason I believe that that putting flyers out for dogs works, but putting flyers out for people don't is because first of all, if you see a dog walking by itself out in the street somewhere, that's rare. It really sticks out. We're seeing people walking by themselves out in the sidewalks all over the place. Of course, is as common as it gets. So there's that. And in addition, there's only maybe if you see one dog walking by itself, a week, that's rare. Whereas you're seeing people walking by themselves all the time. So that's, uh, that. I think that is part of it. In addition, we, with dogs, the reason they go missing is pretty limited. They may run off. I mean, I had a next door neighbor growing up. He had a, a Alaskan Husky, Simone Husky. It would break its chain like once a month just to go run off in the woods for a while. And so dogs, I mean, dogs do get kidnapped. They do get abducted. They do get stolen. But I'm more inclined to believe dogs go missing because they're just following some scent and they go off and they really don't really understand. They don't think that they're lost. It's, you know, maybe they don't realize they're lost until they try to get home. Whereas with humans, it's, uh, of course, humans have a lot more complex brains and they can make, make a lot more complex decisions and people plan their own disappearances. They want to run off. I'm not sure any dog plans its own escape and to disappear so the owner can't find the dog anymore. So... This is the reason I think that for flyers, you know, dog may be out there walking around, but it doesn't know that it's lost. It's just walking around. Uh, whereas with humans, it's different. It's just different because uh, humans 
you know, have more complex brains and uh, we have self-awareness. I mean, we've seen all of these, you know, videos on YouTube and everything with dogs looking in the mirror and they don't even realize that the dog they're looking at is themselves. You know, instead they like try to go around the mirror to see if the other dog is on the other side, but it's not, but it's that, you know. So, and I love animals. I love, and it's, I, I love them, even though I don't have the patience for them. So, um, this is the reasons I believe that flyers work for pets, but flyers don't work for humans because, like I said, other than sticking out dogs and stray dogs and cats and, you know, really stick out and humans don't. Um, dogs don't plan their own disappearances. Dogs don't run off on purpose to get away from their masters and, and things necessarily. Although some of them may want to run off because they're being abused or anything, but you know, dogs run off even when they're being cared for really well too. So um, there you go. Um, Untangible, very true. Deborah puts all the dogs and paws on her. Look at you. There'd be one smart dog if he planned his own disappearance. That would be one smart dog, Marty. Delane, I will see you. Uh, good night, Delane. See you, Mark. My dog's tether is broken before, but he's not smart enough to know he is free. He still thinks he can only go as far as the normal length of the tether. That's. I, I maybe that's kind of what we're talking about uh, here, Mark. So it depends on what kind of animal goes missing: the human animal or the dog animal. You know, dog disappearances simply are just a lot more simpler than than humans. So um, that's why it works for dogs. Doesn't, although it doesn't always work for animals either. I mean, a lot of dogs. Flyers are put up. Dogs are never seen again. Who knows what happens to them? But we know that for human disappearances, that the flyers working is a very, very rare occurrence. So, Penny, uh, thank you for the question. I, I've actually been wanting to try to um, talk about that topic for a while. So it was convenient that um, I got question and, and uh because it is kind of funny it, it is weird not in funny in a darkly humorous kind of way that flyers don't seem to work for humans but flyers do work for animals all right moving on i meant to talk about this last week and that is the disappearance of peggy sweeten s-w-e-e-t-e-n from grove oklahoma Delaware County case investigators met today, uh, April 19th, to lay out their plans to resume the retrieval of a 55-gallon drum from Grand Lake, which they believe holds the remains of a Grove woman missing since 1998. Peggy Sweeten was last seen on January 13, 1998. The 52-year-old former special education teacher and grandmother disappeared from a Grand Lake residence without a trace, leaving her car, clothing, photos, and personal mementos behind. Jim Sweeten, Peggy's husband, is considered by Delaware County authorities as a person of interest in the disappearance and presumed death of his wife. 
Telephone calls to James Sweeten and his current wife, Deborah, were not returned. After spending two days with underwater drones and cameras, divers located a 55-gallon drum standing upright in about 15 feet of water next to a boat dock in the cove where the Sweetens lived. With the divers finding the drum standing up upright shows that it's something significant like concrete or rocks in the bottom of the barrel, said Delaware County Sheriff James Beck. Investigators believe Sweeten's remains are either in the barrel or close by. Approximately one foot of the barrel is submerged in Lake Silt. Beck described the barrel as a burn barrel with holes in it. Tim Knight, nautical adventurous scuba owner, met with Grand River Dam Authority divers investigators with the State Medical Examiner's Office, Cherokee Nation Marshal, Delaware County Sheriff's Office, Delaware and Ottawa County Cold Case Unit on Wednesday. Man, that's a lot of people getting to go. Knight specializes in search and recovery activity. He recommended building a retaining wall four feet in diameter around the drum and using a hose to blow out the silt, leaving materials that investigators can sift through to look for evidence. Jim Sweeten told family and friends that Peggy left with a man she met online. Jim, a former Kansas superintendent, was having an affair with Deborah Hammond, a teacher in another district, according to a 2011, 2011 search warrant. That search warrant notes that Jim refused to submit to a polygraph test and to a non-invasive search of his property. Officials said Jim told them he thought he should consult an attorney when questioned in 2011. James appeared to be deceptive and evasive and appeared to be attempting to find out how far the investigation had progressed and what the investigator knows and what direction the investigation was headed. Jim filed for divorce on February 9th, 1998, less than a month after Peggy's disappearance. Since Peggy didn't attend the divorce hearing, Jim was granted an uncontested divorce on April 6th, 1998. Jim Sweeten's divorce lawyer told investigators in 2011 James' main concern in rush about the divorce was to get his, the property in his name, according to the search warrant. Shortly after Peggy disappeared and just before the Sweetens' divorce was granted, Deborah Hammond divorced her husband on April 1st, 1998, April Fools for him. Her job concluded in June 1998, and she and Jim moved in together at the Sweetens' Grove house. The couple were married on December 27th, 1998 in Las Vegas, according to the search warrant. I lived there at the time. Investigators plan to return to that Grand Lake Cove on May 15th to start the process of bringing up the 55-gallon drum. There is so much about this case that is weird to me, and maybe some of you have already picked up on it. Um, but I meant, like I said, I meant to cover, talk about this last week, but I just ran out of time. Uh, Deborah, some of the missing cases I've heard when a dog is with them they are usually left alive. Okay. Deborah, thank you for that. Okay. I'm can I have to admit I'm confused about a few things regarding this missing persons case regarding Peggy Sweeten. Why is it? Maybe some of you have a good this is like this going back to like the whole thing about the flyers and dogs, flyers and people. Why is it that when they find a car? in a lake, in a river. It gets pulled out within hours. Whereas when they find a a barrel off a dock, I mean, it's right there. It takes like a month to figure out how they're, what they're going to do. (laughs) I don't get that. Um, Surely getting a barrel out of the water 
would be easier than pulling a car out of the water, surely. Uh, in addition to the fact that, as it's said in here, the, the, it seems the, this barrel is not airtight. There are holes in it, so there's water in it. And really, when we talk about pressure and everything, that should actually make it easier to get it off the bottom. In fact, not to mention, if there's holes in it, they could just hook chains on it and, and pull it right up. What is it with this that is making this so complicated? Remember, that article I read there was from April 19th. That was two weeks ago. And they aren't going back to that spot until May 15th, which is two weeks from now. Whereas, as I talked about last week or the week before, with the discover of Robert Helfrey's car here locally in uh, Clearwater, just a few mi miles from where I live, he was missing for what? Since how long was it now? You know, was it 2006? I forget the exact year, but it's been a while. As soon as they found the car, they got they just pulled it right out. Found him in it. Very sad. Looks like an accident. Very sad. But they pulled it right out. But with this barrel, they want to get the silt away. They want to build a dam around it and all this. I'll be honest with you. The more and more that being that they don't seem to be in any rush to take this barrel out of the water tells me that maybe they're not totally convinced that she's in it. Uh, Marcus says there may be something complicating the removal of the barrel. It, I, I, I don't know. It says it's right off the dock. And obviously they got, and this is off the dock that it sounds like Sweetens, I guess, must've had a home with the dock. They obviously somehow got a search warrant to go on there. Uh, there's just something about this that I don't understand. Uh, obviously, I'm not a scuba diver, although I was certified at one time. Um, there's something about all this that I don't understand. It would seem to me it would be the opposite. You find a car in the water. It would take a lot of time to put all everything together to pull it out and make sure nothing's disturbed and no evidence is ruined and everything. It would seem like you could just pull up a barrel in like an hour. In addition to the fact it always seems to me when cars are found, it seems they do kind of hurry up. I wouldn't say rush, but it does seem that it seems pretty easy to arrange for a car to be taken out of a body of water. It doesn't matter if it's a lake or a river. With this, the scuba guys talking about building a dam and getting the water out of it and all of these things. I mean, come on, fellas. If her remains are found in that barrel, you know, if remains are found in that barrel, there's no doubt on what happened. You know, it seems pretty straightforward here. I know you're looking to preserve evidence and everything, but she's in a barrel at the bottom of a lake. I think we can pretty much say that she didn't get there on her own. Um, good point, Ed. Why not just remove it then sort out the contents? So there's that. Now, here's what I would also say. That this, so this is strange to me. 
I'm sure there's somebody out there that has some answer, but this just seems very odd. Um, it's not rocket science. Mark, it could be what you referenced earlier that the police don't believe the borough has any evidentiary vary. Yeah, right. So, yeah. So I'm wondering if this is maybe just uh, a little too much speculation and hoping there. So, Marcus, that's kind of what I'm saying. Thank you. The other part that doesn't make any sense to me, here's what I think I know. I have never killed anybody in my life. I never will kill anybody in life unless it's in self-defense. I will never murder anybody. Let's put it that way. But here's what I think I know if I were a murderer. That if I put my my wife's body in a barrel and I murdered her and I weighed it down and pushed it off the dock uh, into the lake where we live. And then this happened in 1998. And then the police came a calling in 2011 and started asking questions again. And I know what I did, but they haven't been able to pull pin anything on me. And I'm not allowing them to search the property and I'm not allowing them to, you know, I'm not going to take a polygraph test and all these things. The, the answer is talk to my lawyer, talk to my lawyer, talk to my lawyer. Here's what I think I know. As soon as they stop giving me heat, for example, in this case in 2011, as soon as I think the coast is clear again, at like three in the morning, first of all, in my own private time, I'm figuring how to get that barrel off the bottom of the lake. I figure out what it's going to take. Don't do any internet searches that are going to get me in trouble. Then at three in the morning, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to take that barrel with my dead wife's body in it out of there and move it somewhere else being that I know they're snooping around and would just love to get permission to search the property and the dock and the water and everything else. That's what I think I would do. The issue is that it doesn't seem Peggy Sweeten's husband did that. If he killed her and she's in that barrel, why would he leave her in that barrel in the water at all? Because he would have to understand if she's found in that barrel in the water eventually, whether it's 2011 or 2023, and he's still alive, he's getting in trouble. Of course, this is kind of the argument that I made um, with Steve Pankey as well. There was nobody on this earth who knew more seemingly about Janelle Matthews's disappearance or took an interest in it more than Steve Pankey. Of course, now he is a convicted murderer. And the question I keep asking is, if he murdered her, are we really saying that he didn't keep tabs on where he put her out in that field that was owned by somebody else? And he never became worried that maybe one of these days somebody might go out there and build something or dig something and everything. He never did that. Knowing Steve Pankey the way we do, that he was so meticulous and so up in everybody's business and following everything regarding Janelle Matthews' disappearance and all of this stuff. And somehow out of all of that, he missed the fact that there was a digging crew, a pipe digging crew out there. It does seems implausible to me the way I think I know Steve Pankey. This is why I continue to doubt whether he killed Janelle Matthews. He just sat there <laughs> You know, and let her remains there for all these years. He could have gone out there anytime since 1984 and moved her. 
He didn't even move her. You might not have known, but that doesn't sound like Steve Pankin to me. So going back to this, it's kind of the same thing. You know the police are after you. You know where your dead wife's body is. You know if she is found in that location, you are going straight to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. And still, 12 years later, she's still in that barrel, allegedly, even after this, you know, he was talked to in 2011. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me, unless he's just stupid. So, you know, I don't know. Um, Marcus, Dennis Bowman left Andrea on the property after he killed her. Marcus, that's true. But the big difference, I think, Marcus, is that no, they never tried to serve any warrants on the property. I think that's a big difference. And in fact, really, I mean, if we really, really get down to it, I think the only person since Andrew went missing in 1989 who consistently thought that Dennis Bowman killed Andrea Bowman was Andrea's biological mother, who was the guest on Unfound. Of course, she didn't even know Andrea was missing until like 2011. So it wasn't like they were sniffing around. This is the same thing like with uh, Carlos Rodriguez and Zoe Campos. You know, they, of course, in that case, they went and searched the property, didn't find anything. And probably he thought he was safe. That's why he left her where she was is because the police had already been there once and didn't didn't notice anything, which is something that's still mind boggling. So I get what you're saying, Marcus. I, w- I would just say that police were not hounding Dennis Bowman over the years for the murder of Andrea Bowman. In fact, it's clear for a long time they thought that she really did run away. Angelic, 3 a.m. the quiet time, not for killers. So many stories have a 3 a.m. to 4 a.m. time. Dabrit, because he probably thinks he's smarter than law enforcement. Maybe. Everything, I, I, I get haters, but I believe Stin Killer. That's fine for everything. Rockford, Deborah Ann Wolf is another fascinating barrel case. There's an unsolved mysteries on it. The crime, true crime garage covered it. Two lots of odd circumstances in that one. Deborah says, I agree with you, everything. Uh, Marcus, fair point. It's, you know, I, I realize a lot of similarities, Marcus, but I think the main thing here is, I, let's just be clear. If Dennis Bowman isn't charged and convicted for that murder of that woman in Virginia in 1980 through DNA, Andrea Bowman's disappearance is still unsolved and everybody's still twiddling their thumbs except for Andrea Bowman's biological mother. Everything. Thank you, Deborah. Just from interviews like Ed, et cetera, has a bit of a fruit loop, but I don't think he was a murderer. Okay. So there's that. Uh, There's just a couple things about this that, you know, you just watch two weeks from now, they'll go down there and she's down there and, you know, and maybe he's just stupid. The issue, I, I think, on top of everything else is we hear so much about people being put in barrels And I'm not saying it's never happened. It certainly has happened, but a lot less than people think. A lot less. And in fact, uh, of course, we've had some disappearances that have been solved here on Unfound, and not one person has been found in a barrel yet. Instead, Daniel Villarreal was found in an outdoor bathroom. I mean, we, we came to that resolution first 
before we ever got to one where a missing person was found in a barrel. So that just shows you how rare it is. You know, we have uh, Esther Westenbarger drove her car into a pond. Very sad. Surely a mistake. We ran into a, a case like that before we ran into a disappearance that got resolved with a person being in a barrel. Just shows you how rare it is. Um, where do I want to go now? I want to talk about just because this was local and it was so horrific. This actually happened over in Tampa and it has to do with an Uber Eats driver who unfortunately, um, he went to the right house, but it surely ended up being the wrong house. Um, they call him demonic. MS-13 gang member Oscar Solis murdered and dismembered a Florida Uber Eats driver for no reason, officials said at a press conference Tuesday. It's last Tuesday. This is a horrific crime of passion, Pasco County Sheriff Chris Nocco told reporters. What he did is demonic, but at the same time, we couldn't answer the question why. This person killed him for no reason. Randall Cook, 59 years old, vanished April 19th after sending his wife a text that he was completing his last delivery near their home in the city of Holiday, north of Tampa. I've been there. He, she never heard from him again. Demonic MS-13 gang member Oscar Solis. Uh, all right. Randall, uh, what was found inside of some of those trash bags was human remains, Nako said. Solis, who has a lengthy rap sheet, was initially arrested arrested for failure to register as a felon in his father's room in the house where the alleged murder occurred. His father, who no longer lives at the home, remotely ordered the food delivery for him, Nako said. Detectives believe Solace pulled the victim into his home and attempted to rob him, then killed him, and attempted to conceal his remains. Investigators found blood, Cook's wedding band, and his car keys inside the home. Solace, who was already locked up on the parole violation, was again, for felony murder and robbery. You're talking about a very violent individual that Indiana released and sent down to Florida, Naka said, rattling off a list of Solace's previous crimes, including battery, burglary, assault, and possession of stolen auto parts. Now we have a hardworking guy, a loving husband who is no longer with us. Cook appears to have married Kathy Cook in 2020, and the couple's Facebook pages feature numerous photos of them together. The slain man's Facebook page says he ran, ran a website building business called Matrix Design. Detectives are asking for the public's help in identifying a woman and a man who left Solace's home shortly before the victim arrived. These individuals are not in trouble, Nako said, but may have information that is useful to the investigation. A lawyer for Solace couldn't immediately be identified. So this guy, just going about his business, Uber Eats. Order is made by this killer's father. He shows up at the place, and it seems that the the guy who answered the story, and you seen that he has, you shouldn't, you should see him. Um, just pulled him right in and killed him. Um, I have to admit, you know, uh, of course, like the last ten years, uh, this whole gig economy has become very popular. Um, Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, DoorDash, Uber Eats, and all of this. I, uh, you know, I just don't, 
you know, um, of course, pizza delivery. Of course, pizza delivery is probably the thing that everybody uh, thinks of when, you know, going out to people's houses and things. It's a dangerous job. I know it's just kind of taken for granted. I know a lot of high school kids are uh, do pizza delivery and everything else. But it is a lot more dangerous than it seems. And I can tell you that, you know, for the, the women out there who do Uber and Lyft, God bless every one of you. Uh, you know, sitting in a car, having a stranger in the back seat, and this kind of thing. You know, you shut up some somebody's house and this happens. I don't know. Um, just very sad, very dangerous. And I, and I can tell you, you know, some of you uh, know my friend Shay, you know, she was down here a few years ago, very close friend of mine. I care about her a lot. You know, she was a, a Lyft driver in LA. I forget for how long, maybe six months or something. You know, it just, Hey Shay, watch yourself. You know, very sad. Um, you know, it's, it seems to me this was, um, was the father in on it? He called it so the guy would show up and get robbed. You know, was this part of some plan? But very, very sad. And not only, you know, he's killed, chopped up, getting rid of the body parts. Those MS-13 uh, gang members, uh, whew, scary. Just very, very scary. Um, and everything's going back to the previous story. And to put a barrel that wasn't all secure is foolish, Marty. Oh, man, I heard about this story so crazy. Lisa, I can't stop being mad about Lori Vallow. Yeah, I didn't get to that tonight, Lisa. Angelic's so sad, this story, Kathy. I'm just, okay, a uh, very sad and sorry case, Ed. Deborah, to kill somebody is bad enough, but to cut them up, it takes a whole different person who would be doing anything. You would do anything to anyone. Got to keep your head on a swivel. Yeah, you know, the thing is, Marty, is that, you know, you know, was this avoidable? I mean, I guess the only way it could have been avoidable is if the guy had never showed up at, you know, this guy, this killer's house. You know, you show up, who knows really what happened. He opens the door and... Even if this driver had had a gun on him or something, I mean, you know, it's still no guarantee of anything. Just so dangerous these days. And I agree. Last uh, shot and killed and dismembered, put in river. I do not understand what is going on lately. Kathy, Lisa, I love how Nate Eaton is so dedicated in covering Lori's trial. Okay, Lori Vallow. All right. One more thing to do before the night is over. And once again, please remember to give this uh, video a thumbs up before we're done tonight, or if you're watching in the replay, do it that way. Um, we're going to Arkansas. Arkansas seems to be a very popular state for Unfound, uh, mainly mainly because my assistant, Emily, uh, is from there. We're going to be talking about uh, the disappearance of Alan Glasgow on Friday. G-L-A-S-G-O-W. He disappeared from Benton, Arkansas, Sometime, it's a little unclear on the exact date, but November of 2021. This is a disappearance you will not find on the Charlie Project. However, it is on NamUs, but you will find that the date is December 1st, 2021, but pretty much it's believed he went missing before then. 
And the title of this episode is The Final Stage, because I thought it was very interesting, something that, and the guest is Alan's ex-wife, Annabelle, who is not a suspect in his disappearance. But there was something very interesting that she says during the interview about how it seems like Alan disappeared in stages. So somebody's last saw him on this date, and then another person last saw him in this date, and another person last saw him in this date. And then nobody saw him again. It was very interesting how she put it. I thought that was really interesting. And so that is why this episode is being called The Final Stage. Alan Glasgow, G-L-A-S-G-O-W, Benton, Arkansas, and his ex-wife, Annabelle, they have a child together, is the guest for this Friday. Um... Man, that that two hours went fast. Did uh, just real quickly, Kent Jacobs remains were not found last week. That was going on when I was recording the update episode last week. Not found on that piece of property, so he is still missing. Uh, how how the podcast better than anyone class going to come out in June? Uh, if you haven't answered the survey, the newest survey, please go to the discussion group in Facebook and please uh, answer that survey. I would greatly appreciate it. And then finally, please check out my assistant, Carrie, and listener, Jill. They are doing their their own podcast called Missing Chapters, and I listened to it today. It's certainly worth a listen. I think they did a great job, so check that out. Missing Chapters. That's all I got. Keep your heads on swivels out there, everyone. And you will hear me and see me. We did uh, Zoom for this interview, too on Friday. Good night, everybody. And Charlie, say hi to the boys. Good night.